Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Shi. I will be um, an incoming freshman at UCLA and also co-host this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the former Watergate prosecutor and the author of The Watergate Girl, as well as the wearer of Jill's pins. And today's pin is a special one for this episode. It is a globe and I'll post it online so you can see it more closely. So we are so thrilled to be joined by Fareed Zakaria. Um, many of you will know him from seeing him on CNN's flagship international affairs show called Fareed Zakaria GPS. Um, he is also a weekly columnist for the Washington Post and best-selling author of um, The Post-American World and The Future of Freedom. And today we are talking about um, his latest book, which is 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World, which I have right here, which you should all buy um, wherever you get your books or on Amazon. So please check that out. Um, the book offers a thorough and deep analysis of the conditions that led to the COVID-19 pandemic and the global lessons that we can take away from it. We can't wait to discuss this book with you today. Thank you so much for being with us today, Fareed. It's such a pleasure to be you here. Made a Thank, prediction. You Thank you. You made a prediction on your CNN show more than three years before the book was published in October of last year of 2020 and long before COVID-19 upended all of our lives. The prediction is set forth on the back cover of your book. So I'd like to start our discussion by asking you to read that prediction. Well, thank you. Um, so here it is. It is on June 25th, 2017, three years before the pandemic, I made the following prediction on my CNN show. One of the bigger, biggest threats facing the United States isn't big at all. Actually, it's tiny, microscopic, thousands of times smaller than the head of a pin. Deadly pathogens, either man-made or natural, could trigger a global health crisis, and the United States is wholly unprepared to deal with it. Densely packed cities, wars, natural disasters, and international air travel mean a, vi a deadly virus propagated in a small village in Africa can be transmitted almost anywhere in the world, including the United States, within 24 hours. Biosecurity and global pandemics cut across all national boundaries. Pathogens, viruses, and disease are equal opportunity killers. When the crisis comes, we will wish we had more funding and more global cooperation, but then it will be too late. So other than the Africa part, I think I got most of it right. You did. And I want to know how it feels to be so accurate in a prediction. You know, honestly, it, by the time I wrote it uh, for the show, it didn't take a huge amount of prescience. Uh, by then, you have to remember, we had gone through, for those who were watching the world, you, the, Asia had gone through SARS, it had gone through H1N1, it had gone through swine flu, it had gone through MERS. Um, Bill Gates had given a very famous TED talk in which he talked about it. And, and this was why what triggered th this uh, segment in my show was Donald Trump was trying to gut 
the uh, public health and pandemic preparedness parts of the White House. Um, so it was that was the occasion that uh, that led me to do this segment on it to say, hey guys, don't do this because you're going to live to regret it. So the tragedy here is that it was not actually my brilliance. It was that there was it was a fairly widely understood problem that experts were warning about. Interesting. Although we'd like to give you credit for being prescient. Um, did you start writing the book after COVID hit when you realized that this really had happened and was, was an important element? Or did you start writing it when you realized as you had predicted in 2017 that this was a possibility? Well, it's a great question. No, I after I uh, wrote that segment um, and after we aired it, I was attentive to this issue uh, and had been you know, kind of studying it and learning up about what it was that made these viruses so uh, contagious and why they, why they come about, you know, learning about bats for example, that I knew very little about. But what happens is when the virus hits, um, I started to, you know, I was, I was learning up about it and reading the history, talking to experts, trying to understand the science. And I came to realize that this was going to be a really big deal. There was a much more profound event than I had in initially understood because it was really affecting every human being on the planet. And if you think about it, that wasn't true of 9-11. 9-11 was something that, you know, the United States, some Middle Eastern countries, a few other Islamic areas. But by and large, I mean, I, I remember talking to friends in India, Brazil, it had really no impact on their lives. The global financial crisis is very similar unless you had these leveraged financial products or were in societies with these very advanced financial systems. Uh, it didn't really cause the upending that, uh, that we remember. This time, every single person on the planet has been affected by this pandemic, either by the disease, the public health measures, the lockdowns. And that just make me, made me realize, you know, this may be the biggest, the, the most global event I will live through in my life. And at the same time, what happens is uh, all my travel gets canceled, you know, every lunch date, every dinner date. And so all of a sudden I've got a, a certain amount of free time on my hands. So what I started to do was every morning um, around mid-March, uh, I, I would get up in the morning at about 6, 6.30 um, and get to work at 7. And I would sit down actually at this desk and I would just try to read and write about what I thought the pandemic was, uh, what kind of world was it ushering in? Not the day-to-day -day news. I wouldn't actually look at any news, any Twitter, anything, because I wanted to sort of stay... 15,000 feet in the air, you know, not to be consumed by the day-to-day -day COVID numbers and deaths and mask debates, but to ask myself, what's, you know, what is the long-term effect here? And I do that till about 10.30 or 11. By 11, I had to kind of get back to life as normal. You know, I had to de deal with my day job. I had to do the column, the show, the, all that other stuff. My kids would have gotten up by then. And so for about three to four hours, I would just focus on this, either read or write, most of the time a combination. And I did that for about four and a half months. Um, and that's the book. Okay, so let's start with the first chapter. Um, in that, you talk about what you name asymmetric shocks, which are something like the pandemic that starts small but produces seismic waves around the world. Uh, but you mentioned in your answer, and I want to 
Sue, what other kinds of events could be a global shock? Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, problem because it's one that we don't know how to think about in terms of preparing for it. We tend to think and prepare for what we can see as big dangers, right? So we are prepared if, if Russia were to launch 3,000 nuclear weapons at the United States, or if China would or, you know, go engage in a massive invasion of Taiwan or something like that. So we, we have, we spend $700 billion a year on defense on precisely those kinds of large visible challenges and we have symmetrical responses to them. We don't know how to think about things that start small but have huge seismic consequences. So if you think about even the nature of terrorism, the 19 people with box cutters set off a chain of events that results in two massive wars, the United States transforming its domestic security apparatus, you know, trillions of dollars spent around the world, tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives. We, we, we didn't know how to think about that. If you look at the global financial crisis, you know, something that started with a tiny derivative product, a credit default swap that most people still don't completely understand. And it turned into something that was larger than the entire global economy. So one of the things that I want us to, to, to I wanted to try to get us to understand is that we don't understand risks. We're able to think about symmetrical risks, but we're not able to think about asymmetrical risks. And by the way, that's true in life, not just for the United States. I think all of us personally have this bias where we're, you know, we're almost like biologically trained to be looking for the big tiger, not for the virus in a bat in Hubei province in China. Although yeah. I am one of those people who totally loves tigers and have gone to <laughs> see them on multiple safaris. Um, I, I just want to follow up on that question a little bit to, to probe you on something like um, you mentioned 9-11 or the global financial crisis, but what about something like what happened on the Capitol while the debate was going on as to whether to recognize Arizona's electoral votes? The domestic terrorism. Is that an event that could cause the seismic waves around the world? Well, I think it's similar in this respect. You know, there are a number of us who have been warning about the, you know, the dangers of a certain kind of rhetoric, the dangers of a certain kind of behavior. Um, and the response we would often be, be met with was, you know, this is just a few people. This is a bunch of weirdos. This is a fringe element. And the thing I think we haven't come to understand is, and what I write about the book is the nature of our societies now uh, are, are much more open, much more fluid, much more connected, much more dynamic. And what that means is even a small fringe movement, even a, a, a small group of people can morph very quickly into something very large. And therefore it is incumbent on us to not treat these things as these kind of small fringe movements. Uh, here you had a situation where it was, you know, you had initially what were small movements four years ago, six years ago, but here you have had the president of the United States actively encouraging, fanning the flames, in some ways creating many of the conspiracy theories that fed this process. So I, I'm reluctant to call this one a particularly small one because, you know, I think it is not unfair to say that this was an insurrection 
in Washington. And the leader of the rebels, the, the leader of the insurrection was the president of the United States, who that morning had given a speech urging people to be tough, not to show weakness, to march on Capitol Hill, to force action. When you say all this and then say, oh, but I meant action of a different kind, you know, that's now you're getting into a gradation of a, a shading that surely is going to get lost when you've unleashed a mob. Yeah. As a yeah. prosecutor, let me just say, those are prosecutable words. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, I want to jump back into the COVID um, reality right here. And, you know, your book talks about many countries and how they've handled the virus, some well, like New Zealand, others not so well, like the United States. Um, you point out specifically for the United States um, that they should have been prepared to combat the virus, given all of the resources that we have. And I would add that, um, you know, there was a pandemic playbook also developed by the Obama administration, but, um, you know, we failed on an exceptional level in terms of cases and deaths. So, I'm curious to kind of know about how much you think the U.S.'s rates and deaths are due to Trump and his actions and inaction. So, you know, it's easy to blame Trump because he did so many stupid things and he did so many things that made things worse. But I think it goes beyond Trump. Mm -hmm. um, look at even what's happening with this vaccine rollout. Um, the CDC screwed up at the start. First of all, it, it misread the, the, the nature of the virus. It was downplaying it initially. Dr. Fauci was downplaying it. Then it sent out the wrong test kits. Huge, huge mistake. Then it never got its act together. Well, this is really more on the uh, HHS, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services. Never understood the crucial importance of having fast uh, uh, testing, fast national testing, so that you have still in the United States today, incredibly difficult uh, procedures to get a test. And more importantly, the test sometimes takes three days to come back. Now, people need to understand a test that comes back to you three days later, the results, is essentially meaningless. You are only infectious for three to four days. So what you're trying, what is the purpose of the test? The purpose of the test is to get you out of circulation when you are infectious. If you get the test results back three or four days later, you've already infected people, right? So, they, they, so all these mistakes can't be uh, uh, laid at Trump's door. It's fair to say this, government in America is hard. We have designed it to be hard. There are many, many divisions. It's power is divided among the three branches, among dozens of agencies in Washington, distributed between states and cities and localities and counties. To get all of it right and to get it all working at the, on the same page, the president and the administration really need to be energetic, active, focused, determined. Mm -hmm. And Trump was none of those things. So it certainly is true that it will take more than just having a president who's, you know, who's, who's uh, you know, viewing the presidency like a reality TV show. But I think there's a broader issue here. And as you know, I write about in the book, the basic story is really that for 40 years, ever since Reagan, ever since um, uh, Thatcher in England, we have really gutted the basic, the bones of the federal government. It's, it doesn't seem like that because the, the budget numbers look about uh, the same. It looks like we've been spending more, but that's because we spend a lot on defense. We spend a lot on social security and a lot on Medicare. But if you take those three things out, the day-to-day -day governing of the country has become much, much smaller. It's threadbare and there's been an assault on it, you know? from Ronald Reagan who said, 
the nine most scary words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> uh, to Steve Bannon, when Trump came into office, uh, Bannon said, our goal is the deconstruction of the administrative state. Now, if you spend 40 years trying to destroy the federal government that you are leading, guess what? In a pandemic, it, it ain't going to work so well. Right. And, and I'm curious to know your thoughts, because you mentioned, you know, how the U.S. government system is messy. And obviously, we have so many state governments, local governments. Um, we've seen some of the state governments like Illinois, for example, and New York, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, they were able to curb the virus and really handle it well, despite the lack of kind of action from the federal government. Um, but on the other hand, you also have southern states that just don't handle it well. So I'm curious as to whether or not you think that this system of kind of so many local and state governments is effective in the United States going forward and post-pandemic, I guess. It's a great question. Uh, look, in general, America's uh, bottoms-up, diverse approach is very helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, it creates thousands of different experiments. It gives a certain amount of competition. You think about things like tax policy, um, the way in which states are governed, you know, it's easy to get complacent. You see it happening with California now, but then Texas is beginning to attract a number of California businesses. So California is gonna have to think about what does it need to do to maintain competitiveness? That's all great. It does turn out that with regard to public health, this is a problem to have a crazy quilt patchwork of authority in which you have the center, the state, the localities, because simple example, we are our national lockdown. If you remember, we had that initial lockdown was meaningless because you couldn't ban travel within the states and states were implementing the lockdown in a very varied manner because ultimately they have the power. So the fact that you have this inability to create a national standard, a national system, a national lockdown was a problem. Uh, if you talk to the people in Taiwan, who really, the, the, Taiwan gets the gold medal for its handling of this crisis. Yeah. What they will tell you was the most important thing for them was that they could get national data. So Taiwan has a universal healthcare system, a single payer system. Everyone has a, has a card. Um, it all goes into a central database and you can immediately figure out who needs to be tested, who, you know, all those things are available. In America, you wouldn't even know where to begin. We, I mean, we, you know, you're, you're talking about a hundred different in, in non-operable databases. So it does, you know, there are some areas, by the way, I would say voting is another one where I think it's a terrible idea that we have all these different standards for voting, right? I mean, it is a national election for Congress, for the president. It should have the same standards. Frankly, it should be the same ballot everywhere. It should be designed in exactly the way, the same way, counted in exactly the same. Instead, we have a crazy quilt patchwork of different regulations. So a result is in the, in the you know, one, the one case you have public health problems. In the other case, you have legitimacy problems where people, you know, everyone can say that they thought this one is, uh, is, is bad because it's not like the one that are, like our vote. And that's essentially what happened this time where you had the state of Texas essentially filing a lawsuit against the state of Pennsylvania saying your election procedures are not as good as our, our election procedures. The, the, the real answer is we should all have the same election procedures. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, in your book, you make a lot of comparisons um, between countries like New Zealand and Taiwan that you mentioned that have handled the pandemic exceptionally well on those that haven't. And, you know, you got into this a little bit, but 
in terms of the structure of the governments between, let's say, like New Zealand or Taiwan compared to the United States, is there any correlation that you see between like the structure of the government in you know, our country compared to that of countries that have successfully curbed the virus? Yeah, it's a great question because you look, you, I looked hard. It's not a dictatorship versus democracy thing. I mean, Taiwan is an open, messy democracy. China is a very closed system. Both handled it well. Uh, Singapore is more closed. Uh, actually, in many ways, Singapore is quite open, but at least from a governmental point of view, mm -hmm. uh, South Korea is a democracy. New Zealand is a democracy. The one thing that they do have in common is this. They tend to have invested in good uh, public sector bureaucracies uh, run by technocrats, given a lot of funding, but more importantly, autonomy. This is one thing that a lot of American bureaucracies do not have. They're hemmed in by a lot of rules. And by the way, that's partly a problem from the left, not just from the, from the right. Um, and in many of these countries where they work well, they, they are also seen to work well. They are seen mm -hmm. to be efficient, competent, and clean. Not so important in the, in the American case, but when you compare you know, Taiwan and South Korea to other Asian countries, the fact that these governments are seen as clean uh, means that they are trusted. And trust turns out to be a very important part of the story, because when you have trust between government bureaucracies and people, between experts and lay people, it makes a huge difference. Because when they say wear a mask, people wear a mask. When you say social distance, people socially distance. That probably is the single, that sense of trust, trusting authority, trusting the government uh, is a huge part of it. But don't don't underestimate just the sheer competence. You know, the Taiwanese acted early, they acted aggressively, and they acted intelligently. It's really important to understand the last one. Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong all managed this COVID miracle with no lockdown. That's the truly the most extraordinary thing. The vice president of Taiwan said to me, uh, he's the guy who ran the whole thing. Ironically, a Johns Hopkins trained epidemiologist. I mean, they're all they all learn everything in America, <laughs> but, but you know we can we can teach them how to do it, but we can't do it ourselves. Uh, that's um, so funny. He said that a lockdown is a sign you failed, because mm -hmm. what you're really trying to do is to test and isolate the very small number of people who have COVID, and who potentially have exposure to it, um, and separate them from the rest of society. If you can do that successfully the rest of society can go about its business, right? So the key is using that scalpel to get the infected and potentially infected out of, the, out of circulation. And if you can do that, you don't need to do a lockdown. Uh, we have just never even aspired to have that kind of level of intelligent testing. I mean, so speaking about trust, um, you know, that's such a bedrock of a good government. And with, you know, this incoming administration, the Biden administration, um, this isn't a question I prepared, but do you have any, like, what would you say to incoming government officials who, you know, right now, I think a lot of the American public is a little bit cynical about government, about what they can, what it can do for them. Is there anything that Joe Biden and the people who surround him can do like on a leadership level to really make sure that government works for everyone, that there is that trust between the government and the people? That's a, it's a very big question because it's rebuilding something that has been destroyed for two generations now. You know, it's partly, it, it, as you know, the trust in American government in America was very high up to the mid sixties. And then part of it was Vietnam, Watergate, and then the assault on the government from Reagan and things like that. 
Um, I would say, look, the most important thing you can do in, those, in, in terms of COVID is I would try to pick a few smaller things and get them right. You know, pick a few things and hit them out of the park. Make a, make a goal, say something, whether it's about testing, whether it's about whatever it is, and get it right so that you can then within a month or two say, you see, we, we set out to do X, we did it and we actually did it ahead of schedule and better than you might have imagined. Now we're going to set out to do, you know, it's, it's going to be incremental. There is no silver bullet that is going to solve this problem. Uh, but I think Biden has the right temperament in the sense that he really does want to make this work for everyone. He's not trying to just do things for his own supporters. So in that sense, we have, you know, we have something going for us in that this guy really, you know, he comes out of a, a tradition of compromise. So I, I hope we'll get there. He's also got some very competent people around him. Uh, Ron Klain is the guy who handled Ebola for Obama. Um, uh, Jeff Zients is the guy who rescued the Obamacare website in three weeks after it crashed, if you remember. These are the two, probably, Zients is going to be the COVID czar. Klain is the chief of staff. So again, these are people who understand, who, and who understand government is hard. Government in, and American government is particularly hard, uh, which is a real contrast, again, with Trump, for whom it really was a television show. It was about tweeting and then seeing how those tweets would play on television. Yeah, although now we don't know whether or not he can still tweet. Um, maybe we'll see that. Listening to you, what I was uh, wondering is, you were saying to make a small deliverable promise. And I'm concerned that um, President-elect Biden has said, I will vaccinate 1 million people per day for the first 100 days I'm in office. And given the pace at which we are currently operating, that seems possibly not achievable. Do you think that it is achievable or is that overpromising? It's 100% achievable. Obviously, they're going to have to work hard to make it happen. But look, we, we vaccinate... I think about 100 million people in two to two months for the flu every year. Um, you know, it's really extraordinary how badly this, this is going. And again, it's partly because Trump really doesn't believe in governing. I mean, he just get, got the supplies to the governors. And the truth is, again, the, the story I tell about government has happened at the state level as well. All these places lack the, the, the ability. So it, at a time of mass unemployment, why not call up the National Guard? Why not call up the Army Reserve? Why not create a new, you know, there are, but, but you, have, you know, you have to think of it in those terms. The, the, the weird thing about Trump is he never thinks about accumulating powers to do social good. He wants to accumulate powers for himself to prepare, you know, it's the, it's the, it's, that's, that's to me the sign of the autocrat. You know, you're not actually, you know, Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt did accumulate powers, but to do something. Trump wants to keep powers because he just wants to keep them for himself. And if that's the way you think about governing, it's not going to happen. But I think it's doable. It's a, it's a, it's a good target because it, it, you know, also there's something, Biden is a good politician. He understands the, the symbolism of a million people every day. You know, if you get, and if you can hit that mark, it's impressive. For sure. Um, one last question about um, just kind of the standing of America during this pandemic, which is something that you focus on a lot about, especially in the earlier chapters of your book. Um, and one quote that really struck me was you write about how, you know, for many decades, the world needed to learn from America, but now America needs to learn from the rest of the world. 
I, what are the lessons from COVID that you think may change our overall kind of role in the global system? Because as you said, you know, America has always had this kind of belief where it's American exceptionalism that we kind of are superior, but now we have to kind of learn from the rest of the world. So what does that do to us going forward um, in that global picture? You know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question because you're right. America has for so long thought of itself as exceptional in being the best at everything and being able to set the, the, the global standard. And the truth is we are entering a more multipolar world, a more uh, where power is distributed, where best practices are distributed much more evenly. And it's a, it's a new world in that sense. I mean, you want to look at where you can find the cutting edge of financial technology today. It is not in America. It is, it is in East Asia, it is in China, uh, it is in South Korea to a certain extent, it's in Taiwan. If you want to see other places who, that are doing things like that well, uh, the marriage of technology to consumerism, it's in uh, Northern Europe, it's in Sweden, Finland, Norway, uh, places like that. Uh, if you are trying to find the places where, you know, certain kinds of governmental systems work really efficiently and effectively, again, it is not the United States. So, you know, we've, we've, we've got to understand that we're in a new world. And the only way to do well is to ask yourself a, the, the question that every business asks itself every time it confronts a problem. Where are the best practices here? You know, Bill Gates said somewhere, the two questions I ask myself all the time I've been at Microsoft and all the time I, I, I'm at the Gates Foundation, whenever I confront a problem, I ask, who is doing this best and what can we learn from them? Those are questions Americans very rarely ask. You know, we do not look at our healthcare system and ask who is doing this better and what can we learn? We do not look at our prison system and ask who is doing this better and what can we learn? We do, we do not look at our gun violence and say, why is this so high and why is it so low in other countries, right? We're not, we really we resist that because of that, that, is, that issue of exceptionalism that we, we just assume that we are special. And I think that, you know, it's a big, that is a big psychological shift for the country, but it's a necessary shift because, the, you know, it's like you, you're actually, we're actually deluding ourselves. It's, it's not true. There are some areas where the United States is extraordinary and exceptional. There's some areas where we're kind of pathetic. Well, in your book, you address a number of solutions uh, to some of the problems. And we obviously don't have time to talk about all of them, but Let's start at least by talking about the types of economies that you've identified that best meet the challenges of the pandemic and maybe the post-pandemic world and modern life. Um, you suggest, I think, in your book that there is a type of socialist system that has been more effective than capitalism. Could you talk a little bit about that, what you th think is the system that works the best, that would work the best in the U.S.? Sure, and I think it's important to point out that it's not a socialist system. It's, a, it's what they would call a social democratic system um, because it is actually very capitalist. So this is, I'm talking about the countries in Northern Europe, uh, Denmark, uh, Sweden, uh, to a certain extent, Finland, parts of Germany, parts of Holland. And why do I like them? Because they're actually very dynamic. So there is the Heritage Foundation, which is this arch conservative foundation in Washington, puts out a list of called the index of economic freedom. And basically the idea is to sort of, the, the higher you are, the more uh, laissez-faire and open you are. 
-hmm. And what, what struck me about it is when you ask yourself, so where does Denmark, Sweden, uh, you know, even Canada rank on these lists higher than the United States? Why? Because they're actually very open economies. They're very, they're very low ta tariffs. They have low regulations. They, they are open to business. They make it very easy for companies to hire and fire. So in other words, they, they generate income in a capitalist fashion, but then they redistribute. And they redistribute so that ordinary people have access to education, nutrition, healthcare, um, and are able to move up the ladder of opportunity. And the reason I say the system works better is because look, the evidence for 30 years is now uh, unmistakable and very depressing, which is it, the American dream is essentially dead. The idea that, what is the American dream? The American dream is the idea that you will do better than your parents economically. That is, you know, that's what fuels every immigrant who comes to America. I've, it's gonna be a tough life for me, but my children are going to do better. Well. The data is now in for 30 years, which is it is easier for somebody who is low income to move up the income ladder in Sweden, in Denmark, in Germany, in Canada, in France even, believe it or not. Mm. Why? Because you think about being a poor person in America. You have crappy schools because we fund education through local property taxes. You have no, you have a thin welfare system, right? So you have no nutritional programs of any worth. You don't have free childcare. So the mother, uh, you know, is, is, is torn between working and looking after the children. Um, you, you have very few opportunities for training for apprenticeship programs. College is unbelievably expensive and you have to take on huge amounts of debt if you do it. So you think of those as all barriers to entry for, for a poor person those are much, much better addressed in, in this system. So what I like about it is on the one hand, it's capitalist, it's hyper-capitalist in that it generates wealth, it's energetic, it's dynamic. On the other hand, it tries to use that wealth to level the playing field. Um, it, it's a very hard balance to get right because you know, you, you've got to do both. You can't just do one. But I think we need to move in that direction. It, it's interesting because Right now, I think there is enormous frustration with our economic system um, and the inequality that has been visible, particularly during the time of pandemic, uh, both racial and economic inequality. So what do you think, because you say in your book that one of the lessons of, of the pandemic is that inequality will get worse. So do you think that our economic and uh, racial inequities are going to get worse after we come out of this pandemic? There's no question they're going to get worse. It's the most depressing part about study, about researching the, this book, because look, what is happening is we have had a mass shift, an accelerated shift to a more digital economy. But what does a more digital economy mean? It means that people who are able to work with their brains, people who I would call, call symbolic analysts, that is people who manipulate words, images, symbols, numbers for a living. That's you know lawyers, accountants, most businessmen, finance people, um, now doctors because of telehealth, um, uh, journalists, academics, all these people are able to live and, and generate income in the digital economy pretty much as they were able to do in the, in the, in the pre-digital economy. That's about the 
top 30, 35% of the income spectrum in the United States. But if you work in a restaurant, if you work at a hotel, in a retail mall, on a cruise ship, in a theme park, if you work not with your brains, but with your hands, if what you're manipulating are not symbols and numbers or images, but actual physical products, it's been like the Great Depression for you. And that, that shift is unfortunately going to persist going forward. And, and, and this is not a shift to which there is an easy solution because the market and technology and globalization are all pushing in that direction. This is producing a very efficient outcome, which is you know uh, the big get bigger, uh, the costs go, go down, it, it, it works economically. It's going to take politics to do something about it. You know, let me give you one example of the big getting bigger. So I write about this in my book, but the book is itself an expression of it in this sense. Book, book publishing is doing well uh, through this pandemic. Uh, believe it or not, not everybody is watching Netflix. There are a few hardy souls who are actually reading. So book sales are up through the pandemic. But Amazon in, 20, in, in February 2020, before the pandemic, accounted for about 30% of book sales in America. It now accounts for at least 60% of book sales, maybe oh. more. So it has more than doubled its market share. Hmm. Now, that's not just happening with Amazon. That's happening with Home Depot and Walmart and Target. Every, everywhere, the bigger getting bigger, the smaller getting smaller. And so that problem is not going to be solved by the market. It's going to take politics and government to solve it. That's really interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned um, the digital, um, how, how after the pandemic, we're going to live in this digital age. And um, if you don't mind, um, you have a really nice excerpt on page 121, um, starting with but already. And um, do you mind reading that for our audience up until about warmth and intimacy? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm talking about my phone. I'm saying my phone can give me more information than any human I know. Mm -hmm. It can solve complex tasks in a nanosecond. It can entertain me with content from around time and space. And yet I've never mistaken it for a friend. The smarter a machine becomes at calculating data and providing answers, the more it focuses us to think about what is uniquely human about us beyond our ability to reason. In fact, intelligent machines might make us prize our human companions even more for their creativity, whimsy, unpredictability, warmth, and intimacy. Yeah, for sure. That, that, that excerpt rings so true for me. And I know for many in my generation, we see technology as beneficial for our lives. You know, we use it to stay connected, build brands, launch, you know, movements. Um, but, you know, while these types of technologies do perform things at better speeds and with greater efficiency. I know Jill sent me um, a video on Twitter that she found and it was like basically a Boston Dynamics robot dancing and doing things that are that resemble humans in such a remarkable way um, that, you know, there are criticisms for technology and what it does for the um, world in our country. Do you think the growth of technology is a good or bad thing post-COVID world? Because um, there are obviously drawbacks and, um, uh, and positives for it. See, I, the way I think about it is, it's a little bit like asking, you know, is the, the changing of the seasons or the rising of the sun a good or bad thing? <laughs> we're not going to be able to uninvent what we are inventing. Right. You know, the human, the nature of human exploration and adventure is going to go on. So the question I think that what you're really asking is, is there a way for us to shape this technology? Or is it sort of just some kind of 
in you know ineluctable wave. And I, I do think very much there are ways to shape technology. One of the great challenges we're going to face going forward is um, how do you create an artificial intelligence that has ethics, right? Um, how do you, part of it is just making it so that the, 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 the machines understand what our values are. So I give an example, which is an example given by a famous uh, University of Berkeley, uh, California Berkeley um, computer scientist who says, if you tell an artificial intelligence system simply, your goal is to cure cancer, to get rid of cancer in the world, it could as easily kill every human being because that would kill cancer, right? So you have to create priorities and a sense of order and say, well, no, actually the first goal is preserving human life. Mm -hmm. The second is to get rid of the cancer within human beings. Right. The third is to do it at, you know, in other words, the algorithms have to be written very carefully and you have to imbue them with ethics. You know, think about uh, self-driving cars. You will have that, you're going to face those issues when choosing which way to turn in the event of an accident, who to kill, the person in the car or the person outside. So all these challenges, which have seemed like little, nice little mind games, mm -hmm. we are going to have to confront and we're going to have to work through what it means in, in dealing with them. Um, but I, I, don't, I, I think the worry that, and I worry a lot about those things. I worry a lot about the machines getting so powerful that you have really have to think about how to rein them in. What I don't worry about is that we are going to end up in a world where we do, you know, where there is no human contact and we don't want contact because the machines do everything for us. I think human beings deeply crave the contact with other human beings. Uh, they crave the companionship. They crave competition, collaboration, the ability to mourn together, to celebrate together. All those are deep human urges. I, I, I point out, you know, Aristotle says in his politics, man is a social animal and compares us to bees that work, that have to work together. I think that's very true. Um, and I think that, you know, in some ways the technology makes us uh, more able to do that. Look at what we are doing now, right? I mean, in the old days, we, I would have had to travel to where you are. We'd have to set some, these kind of encounters happen much more frequently because they are virtual. But I actually think what they do is they become a, they become teasers, uh, or you know, for the real thing, and the real thing becomes even more valuable. So we might have fewer in-person encounters, but we will value them more because they are you know they are the ultimate prize. And I know that's true. Jill and I have talked about this a lot, especially with the pandemic and how you know so I think we rely on our technology so much, and we're so kind of craving to get out in the real world again and meet new people. Um, but hopefully, you know, like you said, that makes our, you know, dependence on humans even stronger. And, you know, when we do see someone, we appreciate that even more. So um, that's something that Jill and I both share and um, something that you identify in your book as well. I think Imagine the moment where you are finally going to go into a crowded bar uh, with a group of friends <laughs> right. sit in, a, in a table and, and you feel the energy of mm -hmm. all those people, you know, together. Yeah. You can't rec recreate that on Zoom. I mean, even on like, like TV shows like Netflix, like, like when I watch TV shows and when like someone sits next to someone like a park bench, it's like, I would never do that right now. Yeah. But it's yeah. like the day that that's able to happen. Um, we're, we're all looking forward to that for sure. I, I think for sure that the pandemic has made us appreciate our human contacts. We all long for a hug, for, for the communal experience of going to a movie 
and laughing at the same thing together. That is something that I know we all miss. And I, I'm hoping that Victor's generation will get the importance of it because I know that he often thinks that if you text each other, you've had a conversation. And to me, that's not a conversation. But one last question before we wrap up this podcast. Um, and that is after the pandemic, do we have a real chance to build a different and better future by acting on the lessons you offer in your book? Some of these are big global solutions, uh, but are there some things that our audience and our, you know, can actually do uh, in their individual roles to make this a better world post-pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. So firstly, to the, the question of uh, can we make a difference? And the answer is undoubtedly yes. Look, think about what the world looked like in 1945. You had just gone through two world wars that had killed 50 to 75 million people, a worse influenza a pandemic than the one we're going through now, the Spanish influenza, which separately killed 50 million people, um, a Great Depression, the rise of fascism, uh, the, the use of atomic weapons. I mean, just think about what those people were dealing with in 1945, right? And they built a better world on every dimension. They built a better world economically, politically, geopolitically, socially. So there are, there are lots of periods in history where this kind of change and disruption and even a destruction can produce because they, they open up possibilities. They make it possible to imagine a different future. They, they give you in a sense the leeway to think big. So I'm hoping, and that's part of the reason the book is written, is to try to get people to support those kind of changes. And one thing we can all do is support people and support politicians and movements that do want to make a big change and to, to make a big difference. But the question you asked also is about us, I think, personally. And one of the things I think that I came to realize about uh, this pandemic is we, you know, one of the things we have tried to understand is what are the external supports we need to get through crises like this? What kind of healthcare, what kind of government, what kind of corporate policies, uh, you know, what kind of international cooperation? That's all the outside stuff. But there's also a lot of internal stuff we need to get through these kind of pandemics. What does it take internally to be able to adapt, to be resilient, to be able to, you know, to, to deal with these issues. And I think for everybody, it's a different mix, but I hope that everybody uses the pandemic to ask themselves, what is it that got through, what that helped me get through this? Was it, you know, my religion and faith? Was it my friends? Was it my family? Was it the ability to have some space to myself to think? What, what are the things, you know, I think the pandemic stripped us bare in a sense and asked us what's really important you know if you if you're just sitting in one place and you can't do anything what do you what do you care about you know and for me one of the things that I realized was I was sort of I was trapped as it were with my family um, and my books and I realized that you know for me those were the two things that mattered the most what I love to do is to try to read and think about and, and talk to people about the world and make sense of it and help others make sense of it. And to hang out with my family. It was a blessing for me because my kids are, you know, my oldest is older than you, Victor. He's, he's a junior in college. 
Um, my middle one is a is a rising senior, uh, a graduating senior from uh, high school, and the little one is twelve. And so for the older two, um, one was in boarding school, one was in college. It was a novel experience for me to suddenly get them back. You know, I had I thought they had flown the coop, and to realize, to reconnect, and to have new relationships formed with, particularly with uh, with the older ones as adults. Is a very different experience than doing it as a, as as you know as your father to a to a ten year old telling you know you're just telling them what to do all day long. So all of that gave me incredible sense of energy and satisfaction, and it made me realize you know what, like going forward, these are some of the things I'm not going to lose because they were really important. They got me through this, and what that tells me is that they're really important to me in in my life. Yeah. Well, that is such a great way to end the podcast. And we know that your book offers so many more lessons that we didn't get to cover, but we hope for all of everyone listening that you guys buy the book. Um, again, it's 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World by Fareed Zakaria. And we really appreciate you spending some time with us today. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.